0: As listeners of our podcast, you're probably familiar with discussions surrounding climate change and its environmental implications, framed as an increase in severe drought, rising sea level, species loss, and deforestation, just to name a few. But what about the link climate change may have to violence against women? Christy Oriel and Paul Bancroft of the Tahoe Safe Alliance, a nonprofit out of Lake Tahoe in California, recently co-authored an article on the connections between climate change and violence against women, and I was really eager to speak with them to learn more about this phenomenon. Christy and Paul work to provide victims of domestic and sexual violence and child abuse with safety, advocacy, support, and education services, and they are at the forefront of some of these early discussions surrounding this important topic. My name is Serena Simons, and you're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 170. Okay, um, so welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. My name is Serena Simons, and I have with me on the show a good friend of mine, Christy Oriel, and also her coworker, Paul Bancroft, and they work at the Tahoe Safe Alliance. And I'm just going to let you guys introduce yourselves from there and tell me a little bit about what you guys do at the Tahoe Safe Alliance.
1: Great, so I'm Christy Oriel. I'm a Grants Compliance Coordinator at Tahoe Safe Alliance. Um, our organization is a nonprofit operating in the North Lake Tahoe, Truckee area, and we serve um, community members that are impacted by domestic violence, sexual violence, and child abuse. Um, so we provide lots of different services from a shelter, we provide advocacy, we have a 24-hour Um, community helpline available all the time for folks that want to reach out for support. Um, We have a very active children's program. So we work with children who have been exposed to or experienced violence and help them build resiliency and um, recovery. And we also have um, an amazing prevention program that works K through 12 with almost every single school in our area, providing information to kids um, on how to prevent violence and identify it and to be Active bystanders. It's a quick summary of what we do.
2: Dan, I'm the executive director, and I think uh, Christy did a great job covering what we do.
0: Great. Um, so, as our listeners know, this is an environmental podcast, and um, i I particularly like to find stories that meet at that intersection of environmental issues and also social justice issues, and how these issues relate to people. And so. I mean, we're talking to two amazing people from the Tala Safe Alliance, and you're maybe wondering how that relates to the environment. And so Christy and Paul both co-wrote an article uh, titled Climate Change and Violence Against Women, How Abuse is Linked to Climate Change and Why Things Need to Change. And I just thought that was like such an interesting way to think about climate change and maybe not a way that people have thought about climate change before and how it's going to affect, um, not only marginalized communities and, and individuals, but, but women and and girls. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about how that article manifested from your work and, um, go from there.
2: Sure. So, um, a couple of years ago, um, just through some reading and, and, um, research and, and thinking about how, climate change, and particularly in California, thinking a lot about our, our wildfires and what those seasons have kind of morphed into being year-round. I started thinking about how that might impact folks that we provide services to, folks who are in our shelters. What, what, what does that mean for them if we have to evacuate or um, if, if they're unable to leave an abusive situation as a result of these natural disasters that are seemingly more frequent and worse as a result of climate change? And so I was fortunate enough to to have a blog posted on the Move to End Violence website and um it was making the connections between climate change and sexual and relational violence and it really for me it was a way to find that like you mentioned, I was finding that intersection between how how is climate change and kind of the the evolving newer landscape affecting people and those who are vulnerable and and most vulnerable and what does that look like in in these times and and what is the role we can play and um, I think in particular where we live in Lake Tahoe it's beautiful many people choose to come here to live and for vacation to ski and enjoy the the surrounding mountains and the snow and the lake and so There's a a lot of folks here who um, are are, are really into the outdoor activities, and so how can we connect that with the work that we're doing to address uh, gender-based violence?
1: Yeah, and I think we found it kind of really topical right now with what's happening um, in many respects at the federal government level. You know, I'm sure you're kind of aware of the president's vocal remarks doubting climate change and doubting basically indisputable science behind it, and in fact has been kind of pulling us out of agreements and taking kind of very risky steps, I think, for our world. and. Kind of as that's been happening, the fourth national climate assessment was released that really documented some very damaging impacts that we're going to we're already seeing from climate change. And I think for some of us, it seemed, you know, I think back to college when we were around like 2005 or 2006, when climate change was really getting a lot of media attention and it all seemed very theoretical. Aside from kind of the impacts on indigenous communities that are already seeing the impact or that were already seeing the impact, for, for those of us that weren't seeing that, it was kind of hard to understand what climate change means. But we're, we're truly seeing the impact of it now. We are seeing wildfires, particularly in the state, that are terrifying, where there's not enough time to even notify communities. And so that's, that's happening. And then at the same time, the federal government is um, considering the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. Which um, will be expi- has already expired as part of the continuing resolution. So, that's where the intersection really lies. And we end our article with a call to action for people to reach out to their members of Congress and educate them. You know, the, of the connection of these issues. And when we're doubting and questioning the reality of climate change and not taking action to um, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, we're also Increasing um, situations that make victims less safe and leaving, like Paul said, leaving violent situations.
0: I like how you guys started the article with just like, no, climate change is definitely real, and you guys didn't even you didn't even humor that side of it. Like, well, you know, this you were just like, no, climate change is real. Now listen to this article that we wrote about how this real issue is going to affect women, um, in all these disasters. So I th- I thought that was really good. I feel like those. That's the way conversations need to be had from now rather than debating whether or not climate change is even real. Like before, like we can't even get to that point beyond that because everyone's like still fighting over whether it's real or not. And then these issues that are so much more important. Are not being addressed because we can't even get past that part so i appreciated that like you guys just went right into it and um i'm assuming most of our listeners it's an environmental podcast as i said most of our listeners are on board that climate change is real um but i wanted to just kind of define because i have um where did i put that um so according to the united nations and this was taken uh from a 1994 statement uh, violence against women is defined as, quote, any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in sexual or mental harm or suffering of women, including threats of such acts, coercion, or arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or private. So just just to get that definition kind of out of the way, I, maybe you guys can walk us through exactly how like, what are those connections? How exactly is climate change going to increase violence against women and marginalized communities? Like, like, what exactly is taking place? Um, Is it increased mental health issues, increased um, lack of provisions and resources? Like, can you guys walk us through that?
1: Sure. And I think I want to add, um, it's not just women and you've, you've mentioned it. I mean, we, we address women in the article, um, because that's a lot of the research. Well, some of, there's not a lot of research on this, but what's been done has been focused on women. But like you mentioned, it's any marginalized community, anyone experiencing violence, it happens to men, it happens to children. And, um, you know, I think that as a piece of foundational knowledge that makes this connection is that violence is rooted in power and control, whether that's domestic violence, sexual violence, or child abuse. So, when control or power is taken away from someone who's committing that violence, um, it's going to cause it to escalate. So um, I think there's like the very real implications like Paul mentioned is when there's a wildfire or a natural disaster and a shelter has to close, there's an excellent, there's excellent coverage of in Redding when there was the Redding fires, I believe that was last year and, and their shelter, They it kind of followed what was happening. You know, they were monitoring the evacuation orders and where do those, Survivors go. Um, You know, we can find other locations for them, but they're having to flee. They're already in crisis because they're not living at home. And now they're having to flee a very dangerous situation without resources and support. Um, So there's the very real kind of where do people go when a shelter has to close? And we highlighted in the article that when Hurricane Sandy hit, there were 12 shelters that had to close during that time. And typically, what happens in those situations is uh, victims are essentially forced to go back to what they know and where they feel safe, which often means returning back to a violent situation. Um, so, so there's that, you know, impact of that frequency, the increased frequency of wildfires and hurricanes and other climate related issues are creating an actual physical safety concern.
2: I would add also that as, you know, as communities are evacuated and, find themselves in makeshift camps or FEMA camps or in school gymnasiums. Children are much more at risk. There's a lot less accountability and oversight. Oftentimes we see that that's when community really comes together and there's a lot of strength in that, but there is also inherent risk and vulnerability for children, for folks who are trying to flee, but then forced into this this space. I, I think also at a larger level, if we look at you know, climate refugees and, and people who are fleeing their communities or their countries that are experiencing prolonged drought or um, access to resources and water and clean air and work and what that might look like. The The statistics for people who experience sexual assault coming across the border into the U.S. from Mexico, some statistics put it at almost half of the women who come across experience sexual violence, experience sexual assault. So that's a very real threat as well. And and kind of in a less concrete way, but if we look at, I think we can draw parallels to male entitlement to women's bodies and women's spaces, as well as Male entitlement to the earth and to resources and to extraction, and in our line of work, we talk a lot about rape culture, which is a culture in which systems are are in place that allow for sexual assault to thrive or to for it to be okay, whether that's in media, whether that's in uh, music, TV, very real in our current political situation. And um, how do we can we connect that rape culture to how we men in particular are, are doing, you know, are affecting the planet and in terms of resource extraction and really the creating of a a lot of the, a lot of what leads to climate change.
0: Um, you, Christy, you mentioned that there's not a lot of research being done on this. Can I mean, is the, is there a reason why I'm assuming that there's probably a lot of underreporting with these statistics as well. Um, coming from women who are experiencing violence um, and other marginalized communities that are experiencing violence. Um, I think it just kind of goes hand in hand with fear of speaking out. And do you think those statistics are unreported? Like, do you think it's maybe much worse than the bare bones research that's been done is showing?
1: Oh, I think so, for sure. I mean, we, we know that all forms of violent crimes are underreported. Um, I mean, the good thing about agencies like ourselves is that there's no requirement to report um, aside from acts of child abuse, you know, which, of course, we would handle those appropriately. But victims don't need to report the crimes. We don't, you know, we keep um, non identifying information. So as far as our services are concerned, um, I think we're going to we are able to reach people who don't feel comfortable reporting. But definitely, I think that it's a it's a challenge for research, I think this concept is fairly new. Um, And, and just recently, we're starting to see some of the real impacts of climate change. So I would hope that as this intersection kind of becomes more popular, that there will be more research around that. Yeah, I wonder if people,
0: maybe as they become more aware of this issue, will take it a little bit more seriously because it's not just an, like climate change is not just an environmental crisis. When you frame it this way, it's also a public health crisis. So maybe people will be more apt, you know, like in the article you talk about bipartisanship and um, just being able to let go of differences and, and make policy and change that can be beneficial and helpful. Framing it in that way is like maybe more people will care about this issue. Maybe not everyone cares about the environment and they're not able to look forward, but maybe they care about their spouse or um, a a neighbor or someone they know that's experiencing violence or a a child. You know, maybe that's a, a better way to frame it to get more people on board with this concept. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, everyone is impacted for sure. You know the challenge is that most people will stand up and say that they don't support domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, of course. Um, but it's when we get into those intersections where you start to see some of the partisanship. I mean, we talked about immigration, we talked about um, climate change. I mean, there's so many there's so many intersections with this work. But I agree that it's it's bipartisan and it's it's really important that we have these conversations in that way.
2: Uh, and kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, it's really challenging as well when. There is still denial that climate change is real. So, if you can't get past that, then it's kind of a moot point. Which is why we went straight to the point of we're going to establish that this is we believe this is a real thing. Let's move mm-hmm. into the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, that, that makes it a little more difficult. And and kind of on the flip side of it too is there are a lot of p- folks who consider themselves environmentalists and who are all about, um, you know, conserving our natural treasures and restoring streams and wetlands, which is all really important, but maybe are not as supportive of human, you know, the social services mm-hmm. efforts in their communities. And so when I, when I think about it in, in our, here in Tahoe, um, there, there's an, an incredible movement around preserving the lake and the mountains and our winters and all that. And so if we can help make the connection of like, look, this is, healing the earth can happen simultaneously with healing people and we can start making the connections between domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse and the what we're doing to the planet we might be able to engage more people in the work we do if we, if they can see that connection and one of the things that um I'm really excited to do is you know can we take 4 years of our data and look at uh, and compare that to the winters that we've had. So, mm-hmm. looking at the, the consistency of the winters, and if we can see, you know, let's say we have three mild winters, you know, over a four year period, do we see an increase in services and any increase in calls as a result of less snow in the Sierra snowpack, which means less work? Does that uh, increase? The, the incidences that are occurring that are that are coming across you know through our hotline or through referrals through through law enforcement and so if we can if if there is a connection there and we can, and there's a connection between less consistently wet and cold winters as a result of climate change and that's a very clear connection as to how it impacts this particular community and I think we will have a better opportunity to um, mm-hmm. kind of kind of tell that story and to the folks in our community as to why. All of these issues mm-hmm. are, are important, and it's not, I mean, time is limited, and you kind of got to pick your battles and pick your causes. But I, I don't think you can do that um, at the expense of other causes that are interrelated. You know,
0: mm-hmm. That's so true. You, you picked up on a lot of really interesting points there because I have found that to be true, especially, you know, living in Tahoe, that kind of Tahoe culture of keep Tahoe blue. Like, it's all these environmental focused advocacy groups. And I mean, just in conversations with people, you know, they're very well versed and very well educated on climate change and all things related to the environment. But when you kind of go deeper into other issues, there's either like a lack of knowledge and or a lack of interest in in those topics. So I think, yeah, just just pushing that into the consciousness of people, because I think being an environmental advocate is also like kind of a privilege. When you're poor, and um, experiencing just the effects of (laughs) being marginalized, it's hard to focus on the effects of climate change and what all these climate summits are like, that's not at the forefront of your mind. It's like, how can I feed my kids? You know, how Uh are we going to eat for the week? Like how am I going to not experience violence? You know, like that is more at the forefront of the consciousness. So if you have the luxury to spend time educating yourself and being an advocate for the environment, I think it should go hand in hand making that connection with how can I use my privilege and, my availability and, and 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 use that to help marginalize folks and and as it relates to climate change. So I think that's really exciting, and I think those connections need to be made. And I'm wondering if you guys can imagine like what is a way in which we can we can kind of bridge those connections better. Like what what would work better than what we're doing now?
2: Yeah, uh, I um, you reminded me of when I when I originally wrote. Um, a blog a couple of years ago about this. I sent it to a mentor of mine in the South, and who's she's a woman of color, and she said her response was, "Well, well, this is great, but my community is focusing on surviving, so we don't have the luxury of going to Whole Foods and, you know, where right. had to go buying
0: organic, them. buying yeah. you know grass fed chickens, and you know it's yeah. expensive." <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 and so and that and that was a really eye opening um, response for me. I was like, oh yeah. But, but the in there is like, why are we not talking about environmental racism? Why are we not talking mm-hmm. about um, marginalized or, you know, marginalized communities or communities of color where we have our refineries and mm-hmm. where the air is dangerous and the water is not potable? And uh, how is that impacting, you know, brain development on the kids that are growing up there mm-hmm. and on breast milk and all these carcinogens that are out that are in the environment as a result of dumping Mm -hmm. and toxic waste and so uh, you know i think a a question is or or a connector there the bridge between that is starting to connect in addition to what we've been talking about but starting to connect in the um environmental racism as well as environmentalism so you can restore your creek but for for fly fishing which is great if people can access it but what about you know the water table in communities that no longer can drink that water, mm-hmm. and, and the air isn't safe to breathe, and their 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 environment is contaminated with um, all sorts of toxic chemicals. So, like I would love to see Patagonia take on an initiative that's funding, you know, cleaning up the communities and really taking that mantle. And is that a bridge that we can use to start bringing in more people to this conversation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was kind of all over the place. No, that's no that was funny. good.
1: <laughs> I think, I mean, ultimately, like you said, it's are public health and healthy communities is what, you know, our, our goal is in serving victims of intimate partner violence and child abuse. Um, and it all, it all works together. So I, we need to look at issues like environmental racism. We need to look at policies impacting that. I mean, we're lucky up here in that we have a very collaborative culture within our, within our nonprofits, So we all, we do work very well together. So in smaller areas, it's a little easier to start building that. Um, You know, it was really interesting when Paul, when we were working on our winter appeal um, this year, which we sent out every winter around Christmas as every single nonprofit in the world does asking for donations and support. It didn't feel right to him that we were asking for money. This was kind of in the thick of the campfire. And I know he was sitting on it for a long time and finally came back and realized this doesn't feel right because you know, there's so many people hurting right now. And what can we do to help support them? So he made the decision that, you know, half of what was donated to Tom Safe Alliance for our appeal is going to campfire. Uh, victims and families and this organization serving them. So does that stop climate change? No. Does that, you know, create that like groundbreaking change? No, but it is the start of something really important. And it's like you said, it's bringing it into people's consciousness. Um, You know, that letter goes out to hundreds of our donors and volunteers and supporters. And this article is reaching people. So I think that that's where it starts and that we can't underestimate those small acts. Um, of sharing that information, you know, and our goal should be bringing those people from the margin to the center um, in all of our work around environmentalism and violence prevention. Um, And little steps can do that. So I think we're moving in that direction. And I hope that it continues to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, this is a really zoomed in, version of, like, what we need to do nationally and globally. Tahoe Safe Alliance is pretty close in proximity to Paradise, where the campfire happened, and you guys are doing what you guys can in your community and beyond your borders there to to help out. And then Paul was talking about – I think it's – that was so fascinating when you're talking about, like, if you guys can find connections between snowpack levels and, like, how – Bad the winters are and how that either relates or doesn't relate to increased vi- like I think those kinds of studies are they're so interesting and it, it would be just complete evidence you know that what you guys are doing is it's helping your communities and thinking about yeah this is happening in my community but it's also happening in all these other communities all these little pockets and in, in all these other different ways like in Flint you know like yeah like outside of all of these p- power plants and, and nuclear plants where they've pushed marginalized and people of color into these communities and they're they're dying and no one's doing anything so like if we can talk about it more and and if people can recognize you know that listeners from all over can recognize like I wonder what's going on in my community and how how can I help my community like thinking about that from a small scale I think could actually be really important and impactful donating to the campfire victims wasn't helping or curing climate change but it is making these small dips in the pool and and making these little ripples so i think it's important you know even if it is starting small yeah that was my rant sorry
2: rant
0: <laughs> um so i mean you guys wrote this article but like what are some other things that we are like sh- how do we keep talking about this issue to spread this information because i just want to yell it far and wide because i like i i've been i've been thinking about environmental racism for a long time and i think it's like one of the more interesting ways for me to think about climate change and th- and and that's not for everyone because it's really complicated and it's and it's really unsettling to hear how like our government is actively doing all of these horrible things mm-hmm but I've never really thought about it in this framing it in this way. I think this needs to be just like blasted everywhere. Like how do we, how do we get people to listen?
2: Well, let's start with the listeners of your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's, there's so much opportunity in this. And, um, I had a, I was having a conversation with a colleague last week from Colorado who has, um, an environmental background, and we were talking about the amount of you know youth leaders and folks who work for environmental groups that work with youth and take youth out in the back country or are doing a lot of different programs that are youth centered. And we we're, were talking about how 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 can we begin some education with those leaders around trauma and healing trauma and resiliency and if, And if, uh, thinking about some of the, the programs in our area who work with kids in the schools and they take them out and they identify trees and kind of the ecosystem and an understanding of the formation of the lake and the mountains and all that, if, if, the, if those folks had some understanding of trauma, could we, could we start with the training there and make the connection between healing the planet and the trauma of the planet, which would have, a lot of it is geared towards that stewardship, that conservation, um, while healing the trauma that a lot of those youth have experienced. So, statistically speaking, one in what one in four girls and one in six boys will experience some form of sexual violence before they're eighteen. So, if you have a class of twenty, odds are pretty good that you have several kids in your or youth in your class that have experienced multiple forms of trauma. So. I, I think that there's opportunity there, and it feels less scary of you know requiring outdoor leaders to become domestic violence or sexual assault advocates and and knowing how to um, deal with those crisis situations all the time. Granted, many are mandated reporters, but if if we can create some common language and understanding around trauma and start really utilizing that space, that connection to that that adult and that space outside to begin. Uh, drawing the parallel between healing the trauma of the planet mm-hmm. and and the healing trauma of people, and if we can really start targeting youth, then we know um, the data shows that they will be less likely to experience trauma as, as adults if we start focusing on, on them as youth, and that you know that's mm-hmm. an approach. Mm-hmm.
0: But but talking about trauma is almost more hush hush than talking about climate change. You know what I mean? Like expressing your trauma yeah. is is not something that a lot of people will do because of the culture that we live in. Mm -hmm. So Christy, I think you mentioned it earlier, talking about creating active bystanders and doing that with kids and teaching kids. Um, Maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, yeah, we we don't want to put all of that, all of that responsibility on, on the victims and and we want to create, yeah, active bystanders that can, can stand up and, notice things and say things and report if necessary and and i guess how how would that relate to climate change how do we create environmental active bystanders
1: so i think you know much of this for me comes down to community mobilization and having the conversations you know some people are empowered by going and testifying in front of a legislature on a topic or or writing an article in a paper or protesting outside of a building some people aren't, and are more comfortable having just the conversations within their families. And I think that that's where both for climate change and um, intimate partner and domestic violence and child abuse, like that's that's where the change happens. You know, it's those getting over the fear and breaking that stigma. You know, it, it is not the responsibility of the victims to do that. Um, but those of us who are comfortable having these conversations, you know, and I've worked in this movement for almost 10 years now, and I would say just in the past couple years have I kind of really started feeling comfortable having these conversations with members of my family, because even for me, it was stigmatized mm-hmm. this up at the dinner table when I would hear someone make a comment that was inappropriate, um, you know, and and how do we have these conversations without... You know, there's a, there's a phrase I heard in the training, you know, so people aren't comfortable calling people out. So why don't we call people in? And when you, when you see something, whether it's racism, whether it's something that's sexist or damaging, you know, um, use that as a, as a, a teachable moment to have a conversation and really dig into like, well, why did you say that? And like, you know, I think that that's, that's where we initiate change. Is those dinner table conversations, those conversations with your coworkers, you know, um, with your friends? It's it's on all of us to start those conversations. Um, it's not on the victims, and victims shouldn't feel like they have to disclose their trauma and their stories. You know, it's not again, it's not on them. it, it goes back to the, the rape culture. Um, it goes back to how we how do we make our our spaces safe? You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And including everyone into those spaces, yeah, regardless of your gender identity or your ethnic racial background. Um, I guess my next question is how our listeners or how just anyone can can be helpful, like knowing the information that we just discussed and we talked about you know reaching out to your your community individually and you know having these dinner table conversations and I'll, I'll definitely link to your website. But outside of Tahoe Safe Alliance, like how can how can we mobilize more people?
2: I, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with with Christy and talking about community organizing and mobilizing and just starting with that dialogue and those conversations. And I I think you know reflecting on our community, when we have, when there's some sort of environmental-based event happening, everybody shows up and everybody supports it, whether it's, you know, a a film festival or, you know, some other fundraiser type awareness event, people show up in droves and we, it's much harder for us to get folks to show up to our events because it's just not as fun to talk about when you show up at a potluck and, Everybody says, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, I work at will safe plants. Well, what's that? And then you explain it. And it's like you can hear the proverbial needle on the record patch, you know, like, oh, okay. Well, anyway, let's, you, we don't want to talk about that. But, um, you know, most communities have organizations similar to ours. And, and so for the folks who are um, conservation minded and environmentally minded to also learn about and show up and support other organizations that are that are helping the humans that are impacted and or maybe become more impacted as um, climate change evolves we I don't know if we know exactly what that's going to look like but it's probably not going to look better than how it currently is so supporting other organizations and and other movements and and having conversations and understanding around where where do these different movements uh, intersect and what does that look like
1: mm-hmm And I would, again, go back to, for those who do feel comfortable reaching out to members of, you know, even local government, uh, state government, I think it can be kind of intimidating to contact your representative, but the reality is, is, you know, these folks represent us and it's important that they understand um, the connection of these issues. And when we're talking about reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, we also need to talk about what that means for climate change, you know, and vice versa. So I... I think working on talking points and making sure that you know you're making that argument clear and effectively is is really important um but not being afraid to to reach out to your to your legislators because they they do listen they really do. Um not everyone not all the time but um you know that's some of my background is working in that world and um a lot of people a lot of representatives care deeply what their constituents think. So don't underestimate your value as a member of the public.
2: And, and I would add, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, was it two years ago that when they were reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act that they included, five years ago, that they included Native American women and girls as protected in Violence Against Women Act, right. sorry?
1: Well, so what the, the most recent reauthorization in 2015 gave authority for tribes to prosecute non-Native offenders. Um, under certain circumstances, but it, it, it was it was the first time we've seen in a long time that um, our Native um, communities were offered some form of protection under the Violence Against Women Act, um, and that is that was the most controversial piece of the 2015 reauthorization. Um, and we've heard that it is also you know there's if if anything we need to expand that much more um, because um, it's it, it's great, but it really wasn't wasn't quite enough, but it was a great start. So yeah, absolutely. That's a, it's a huge piece of the reauthorization of VAWA. There's many pieces in the potential reauthorization around immigration status, providing safe and protective ways for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault to have temporary and permanent immigration status in the United States when they are victims. Um, I'm sure you probably also saw just recently, um, a court struck down attorney general Jeff Sessions, Restriction from victims of domestic violence, gang violence and um, sexual assault from seeking asylum in the United States. Um, All critical policy moves, you know, and I, I really I know that the advocates in this in this field and outside this field and the survivors are the ones responsible for some of these changes. So definitely get out there and make sure you're being heard.
0: Absolutely, Um, and I can link more information. I think I've mentioned on previous episodes of interviews that I've done about the insane statistics around missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's like I forget, and I'd have correct me if I'm right. It's like one in three, something like that. It's it's and it's 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 so unreported, and the statistics are so. There's just so so many missing and unaccounted for um statistics and information about um how it's affecting indigenous women, so um we can link all of that um as well um but yeah, I mean heavy topic, but important um do you guys have anything else that you wanted to add?
1: Gosh well, we could go on for another hour about <laughs> violence against native women but the the last thing i'll say I think it ties into that and ties into some of the other pieces is that. I think looking at um, violence against Native women is a very good example of understanding that this is not endemic to Native communities, um, that the violence and the rates of sexual assault that are seen in those communities and missing Indigenous women are a product of colonialism, which is another example of, I would say, even rape culture of taking what is seen as ours um, and bringing this violent culture to communities. So... Um, I think that that, it's a very good example of showing that, you know, losing your job, all these things, these don't cause violence against women. They don't cause violence against children or anyone, but they can exacerbate those circumstances and it creates a toxic culture. So that's what we need to work against is um, ending that form of culture that sees the earth as ours to take and destroy, um, sees women's bodies as ours to do what we want with um and exert, destroy. take and destroy exactly. So it's all it's all connected and I, I really hope that intersection is is clear to your listeners.
2: And I think if, if folks want to learn more, there's not a lot of research or, or out you know, information out there, but there is some and I you know um I always recommend folks reading Derek Jensen and you know, his writings and um, Dr. Elaine Anarson, out of Colorado, who's done a lot of work on how natural disasters impact women and children disproportionately and differently. Um, and interestingly, she used to be the executive director of the Nevada Coalition to End Domestic Violence. Um, so there's already that natural connection. <laughs> and, uh, Christian Perani, journalist, author, who's also done some great writing um, connecting climate change and just increased violence as temperature global temperatures rise. What does that mean for civil wars? And so, um, there there is some information out there. So, thank you.
0: Well, I want to thank you both for coming onto the podcast and helping helping me make those connections because they're amazing connections and i would love to learn more and um as we said yeah we'll link all of the information that we talked about on the show today um in the show notes for the podcast as well as on our website um and can you guys say the the website for the tahoe safe alliance so our listeners can check that out as well
1: sure it's www.tahosafealliance.org And our 24 hour crisis line is 1-800-736-1060.
0: That was my interview with Christy Oriel and Paul Bancroft from the Tahoe Safe Alliance. To access links to all the resources discussed in this episode, head over to our show notes page, which is wildlandsinc.org EOC170. As always, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so that we can continue to share amazing stories like these with you. This episode was produced and edited by me, Serena Simons, and a special thanks to Christine Paul for all of their amazing work. Today's music is by Kevin McLeod.